Safer Chemicals Podcast. Sound science on harmful chemicals. Welcome to the Safer Chemicals Podcast. My name is Päivi Jokiniemi. In this episode, we speak with Erik van der Plasche, chair of, the, of our Biocidal Products Committee. When companies apply to get their biocidal active substances approved or have their biocidal products authorized across the whole EU, it is the Biocidal Products Committee that checks them and forms an opinion on the applications. The opinions are then sent to the European Commission, which takes the final decision on the applications. The October meeting of the committee lasted two weeks and many applications were covered. For example, nine cases for union authorizations. In addition, the committee discussed its future workload, upcoming guidance on analyzing alternatives and several applications for active substance approvals. So thank you for joining us, Erik. Thank you, Pivy. So you have just finished a record-long two weeks meeting. To start with, maybe you could tell us a little bit why the meeting was this long? Yeah, that's true. Normally the, the our meetings are three, four days in, in one week. But this time, uh, due to the fact that we simply had a high number of opinions which we needed to adopt, as you already said, uh, nine union authorization applications and uh, two active substances. And together with that, we have a number of standard agenda items. We simply could not fit at all into uh, one week. So that's why we had to go to a two-week meeting, meaning three days in the first week and then three days in the in the second week, which we just finished uh, yesterday. Good. Um, and one of the agenda points, if we go now to the, um, to the meeting itself and its contents, it was about the future workload for your uh, mm. committee. And you're expecting quite, a, quite an increase there. Um, how, does the, how did this discussion go? Yeah, first of all, we uh, informed the committee of uh, the numbers which are coming to us uh, in the coming years. And that's based on a forecast which we made uh, based on information we received from uh, the member state competent authorities. So we asked them how many uh, union authorizations are you intending to uh, submit to us in the coming years, how many active substance uh, dossiers we will get. And from that forecast, we made the numbers. And there you can see that for union authorization, we will go to something like, I would say, 10 to 15 for each meeting. There's a large backlog of uh, union authorization applications, but member states are starting to get rid of that. And that means 15 each and every meeting. But the real increase comes from the active substance approval dossiers, which are coming. That has to do with the deadline of 2024 of the uh, review program and uh, member states, uh, yeah, they want to meet that uh, deadline. That means they have to increase their submissions and that we see especially appearing in the second half of uh, next year and the year after. And to give you an example, we expect that uh, we will need to adopt something like 80 opinions uh, next year. And that's something we've never seen before. Well, how how will this? Uh, how do you expect this will um, will um, affect your your meetings? Will you have to have more of them? Are they all going to be in the future two weeks, mm-hmm. or how will you manage that workload? Yeah, that's the question, Avon. Eh? Uh, what are we going to do with these uh, high numbers uh, coming to us? Um, 
Yeah, maybe a couple of things to say about that. For, from our side, we would like to stick to to four meetings a year. That that's simply the maximum we can we can bear. But maybe first to say first of all that um, this increase in numbers is something we really appreciate as a, as an agency, but also as the commission. As you know, there are delays in the review program, so that numbers are going up is a good thing. But indeed, we need to see yet how we deal with that within uh, within the committee. And there, uh, yeah, we, we had a bit of an exchange with the members saying, on the one hand, uh, you would like to process as much as possible. On the other hand, we have the maximum capacity maybe where we can deal with in a two-week meeting. And as you said, indeed, we foresee that we would go more and more to these uh, two-week meetings. But we have to keep a certain balance of uh, what can we take as a secretariat, what can member states uh, take, and also that member states uh, keep commenting on the dossiers. You know, we have this peer review process, so we also want to not overload them too much that uh, we do not receive, let's say, that many comments anymore or the quality of the peer review goes uh, goes down. So that's a balance we will have to strike in the, in the coming years uh, and that, that needs some adjustments from us all, probably. So I guess the discussion will... We'll continue how to how to manage yeah, sure, this uh, sure, increased indeed. Yeah, workload. Not only in the committee, uh, there we talk about opinions, but also at uh, the the political level in Brussels, they they will need to, we will need to continue discussing this this higher workload and how to set priorities, these kind of things. So this is for sure not the last time we are discussing this uh, this uh, yeah this higher workload. Yes, thank you very much. Um, Maybe then we can move on to the um, active substances that you uh, covered in this meeting. Um, are there any discussions that you would like to highlight for us? Yeah, we, we had uh, two. Um, quite interesting, one in the first week and one in the second week. And we had, uh, yeah, maybe to start with the first topic, uh, a little topic, but it might be relevant for our, for our audience, is that uh, we discussed what is called post-approval data for permatrin. And permatrin is a very well-known uh, insecticide. And because of this new data, which came in after permatrin is already approved for mosquito control as an insecticide or as a wood preservative, uh, that it's now meeting the substitution criteria. And that means that for future uh, applications for biocidal product authorizations, uh, there needs to be what is called a comparative assessment. So this has a real consequence for the market uh, for permatrin-containing products. But that's maybe a minor thing. The, the, the two main discussions we had was uh, dialatrin uh, and, and BIT. And maybe to start with, uh, with dialatrin, um, that's an insecticide uh, used for mosquito control and to control uh, fleas. So that's what we call a product type 18. And the commission decided to not, of the, com the committee decided not to approve this uh, this uh, active substance. Um, and it was a it was a long uh, a long debate. Uh, Germany was the uh, the rapporteur uh, bringing this dossier to our forum. Um, and maybe to explain the, the reasons for the non-approval, because I guess that's most most interesting that. Uh, there were, in fact, two reasons. Um, the first one is, maybe this is quite technical, but uh, um, 
The reason was that the toxicological batches, as we call it, were not covered by the reference specification. And that's maybe a whole mouthful. But what we mean with that is that you have an, uh, an active substance, in this case dielatrin, and we have tests which are done with this active substance dielatrin. And the company, of course, produces dielatrin and they place it on the market, and that has a certain profile, so a certain composition. The active substance itself, it can have impurities from its production. And we need to be sure that the toxicological or the ecotoxicological tests which are carried out with this substance is the same as the one which they place on the market. And what we have normally is that there can be different uh, batches, as we call it. Uh, some of the tests are, for example, quite old, some are newer, and this profile of the substance by which the, the test was carried out is different. And in this case, uh, we couldn't decide that uh, the substance which is placed on the market is the same as the one with which the tests were carried out. Not for all endpoints, but for certain endpoints or for certain properties, we were not sure. Um, we were in fact sure that it was not the case. And that means that we have no basis for the assessment. We cannot uh, establish what is called a reference value, a threshold which may not be exceeded for human health before you start seeing risks. So that was first yeah, the main reason why we could not, uh, could not approve this substance. And even if it would have been the case, we identified unacceptable risks before the use of dielatrin. And there are two different uh, applications. One of them is you have a, a mass and they're impregnated with dielatrin, which evaporizes from it. And the other one is spraying. So you spray the, the dielatrin containing product uh, by professionals, by non-professionals, so it's also in, yeah, in, in, uh, in everybody's house. So this is going to be banned, and uh, that's of course not a good decision for the company, but uh, there was a clear majority from, uh, from, the, uh, from the committee to ban this, uh, to ban this substance. So there, you don't expect any, any further discussion on that? Um, well, I would expect indeed that the commission, who has to take the decision, that this will be taken over by the by the commission. Yes, and maybe one interesting point is that uh, it is a, a well-known substance. I must say, in in Finland, uh, I don't know exactly how long it was ago, but uh, I think it was over the summer that we had this product in Finland, which was called Thermacell where dialatrin is one of the substances which is contained on it. And there was a lot of uh, publicity around this, this biocidal product um, because the use of it led to what, yeah, let's say the use led to a, a decrease in biodiversity. So there were adverse effects seen in the environment by the use of this uh, biocidal product. So maybe this, this, yeah, this ban might spark also some, uh, let's say some reactions within the Finnish uh, within the Finnish society. Very interesting. You mentioned also another another case of, of active substances that mm -hmm. you could tell us about. Yeah, that's uh, BIT. Uh, and that's uh, uh, another active substance. It's a preservative uh, used to preserve products. Uh, this can be paints, this can be detergents, this can be uh, 
metal working fluids, this can be glues, this can be adhesives. So these kind of products, which are there to preserve, are used in a wide range of, uh, of, uh, of products. Um, and it belongs to a class which is called isotiazolinones. And these are, this may not sound very familiar to you, but uh, they are well known for their effects, which means they have sensitizing properties. And there's a whole range of these uh, substances which we have already seen uh, with different names. So we, for example, have CMIT, MIT, we have MBIT, we have DCOIT, but they're all used uh, yeah, for the same uh, purpose. Uh, and they all share this kind of property that they lead to, uh, yeah, to, to, skin, uh, to skin sensitization. That's why they're also a bit under, uh, under pressure and under attention. Although on the other hand, and that's uh, for sure something which I think is true, that these products are to a certain extent also essential because they are there to preserve and for water-based formulations, for example, we move, well, we, we are already there, we see more and more that we move from products which are based on a solvent to a product which is based on water, water-based paint and solvent-based paint. So they're also quite crucial for the, uh, for the market. Um, but as I said, these are, uh, these are sensitizers. Um, that's something where we have to deal with when we start to approve these, uh, these active substances. They are used, of course, by professionals and by non-professionals. You have a, uh, a decorative paint which everybody uses and you have uh, professionals who are using these, uh, these paints. So what we've done first of all, and that we've also seen in the, uh, in the uh, approval of these uh, related substances, that we uh, implemented a measure meaning that uh, the concentration of BIT in the paint, for example, should not be that high that you start to see uh, a sensitizing effect for the general public, for non-professionals who are using these type of products. And that's a measure which we've seen everywhere, but for professionals, uh, there this measure is not needed because a professional can put a glove on. And that's something which we do not expect that everybody, uh, let's say who's painting at home, that uh, somebody uh, does this. Um, so as, yeah, in the end we approved this substance, but there are some measures which we opposed when we moved to, uh, to product, uh, product authorization. Um, so it was approved as an incant preservative and also as a, as a metal working fluid, which is product type 6 and product type uh, 13 for our framework. Very good. Thank you. Um, if those were the active substances, then what about the record many union authorization cases? Yeah, there were many. Um, nine in total, uh, spread over a couple of days. Uh, some we had already seen before, let's say um, that what you see with, with authorizations. Each active substance in itself is unique, but a, a union authorization can be for a similar product. You simply have another company who places the same product on the market. So we saw, for example, uh, products which are based on hydrogen peroxide, products which are based on uh, active chlorine, uh, mainly now used in the disinfectant uh, market. Um, yeah, which we, as I said, which we saw for the, for, let's say, not the first time, so a similar application. So most of them went 
uh, quite uh, quite smoothly, although you always have some things which you need to discuss. Um, maybe one thing which was interesting uh, to to uh, to mention in this time of uh, COVID and the use of uh, of gels based on alcohol to disinfect your hands, which we've seen now uh, almost everywhere. Of course, even in this building, etc. We we see that uh, we see we have all these bottles with. Uh, with a hand disinfectant. Uh, we had three applications. They were there for, uh, not for a, a hand disinfectant, which is used by the general public, but by professionals uh, used in hospitals. And um, the issue was that uh, these type of product also have their negative effects. They are classified for effects on, uh, on the eye or sometimes on the skin. So they can uh, potentially hurt your eye when you get these kind of products in it. Um, and the whole debate was about, uh, do we then put something on the label, uh, a sentence where we say, keep this out of reach for, for children. And that led to some debate because on the one hand, such a sentence, such a warning stems from the, uh, from the uh, uh, regulation we have on classification and labeling. Um, it's a kind of an automatic sentence you would put on, uh, yeah, on, on the label. So meaning you have these uh, hand disinfectants, these dispensers in a hospital, and you would have this warning sentence on the label of the dispenser. Um, and the debate was then, you have the hospital, you have by default children uh, walking around, uh, you have parents walking around with their children. So uh, will this then not, uh, yeah, something where the children or the parents get scared about, let's say that they see this uh, warning sentence. Uh, well, on the other hand, uh, we have a professional environment, we have nurses, we have doctors, who are used to work with these type of uh, disinfectants and who, who will ensure that uh, these products are kept out of reach for children or meaning that children will not go to the dispenser and start to use it. Uh, so there was a bit of debate. So, so some uh, members said, well, there's no need for this sentence. It might even be contradictory to put it on. It might not do what it should do. And there were others who said, okay, it comes from the regulation. We know these, uh, these things uh, have these type of effects. We should put on the sentence. In the end, we did put it on. But I think it's for sure not the last time we will have this, uh, this discussion. We will see more uh, propanol-based uh, disinfectants. And um, in the future, we might also see uh, ethanol as, uh, as a substance which is not yet approved, but also over there you will have this, the same type of uh, discussions probably. Mm, that's interesting. Um, was there anything else in the union authorizations that you would like to raise? Mm, yeah, maybe another complex case, which was yeah just yesterday, which was a... Uh, um, a product based on ciromazine, and that's an uh, insecticide. And this product is uh, is used to uh, control flies and nuisance flies in uh, in farms, in animal husbandry, 
it can be by professionals and by non-professionals. It's also used by uh, in, in waste management uh, facilities. Over there, again, it can be indoor and outdoor. Uh, composting, for example, or waste management facilities where you have some problems with organic material and then you get uh, an infestation of flies and you, you need to do something about it. Um, and for uh, animal husbandry, it's uh, treating, for example, manure heaps which are there outside or you treat the stables uh, inside. Um, so again, a quite a wide range of, uh, of uses. And the first time we saw this, uh, we saw this uh, substance or we saw this product based on this substance where there were quite a couple of issues which we needed to, uh, to discuss. And the first one was that uh, the rock recently uh, came up as an opinion on a metabolite of uh, this active substance, cyromazine, called melamine. And before that, this melamine was not classified, but now it was classified by the rock as meeting the carcinogenicity category 2. And that means that, uh, let's say, if we would follow all the, the methods we have, that would mean that ceramazine would meet the uh, substitution criteria. Um, and that's a bit of an issue because when the dossier was submitted, it was not the case. But now when it came to the committee, then uh, if we would have followed the method, let's say, it would meet the substitution criteria. And that means that uh, the product cannot be authorized for uh, a normal period. And there would be, again, this need for this comparative assessment we already talked about when we were talking about uh, permetrin. Um, where the issue was that it is not yet established as a uh, meeting the substitution criteria. That still needs to be done by the committee. That might, uh, might happen in the next meeting. And as during the submission, it was not, there is no comparative assessment. So there was pressure from some member states who said, well, then we might, it might be better to postpone the adoption, wait for this process to happen, and then come back on it again. Um, also, the commission was saying that, uh, well, you have to take this information into account. It's simply there. And for us, it would be very difficult if we get an opinion from you uh, where you say, in fact, now it's not, but we know it's going to happen in the future. So they also advise us to, uh, to please uh, not adopt his opinion. Um, so that was one thing which was, uh, yeah, which was complex to deal with. The other thing was that, uh, and that again has to do with this melamine, which is this metabolite. And if you, for example, apply manure on land, treat it with this product, then you may have leaching out of the ceramazine or its metabolite melamine out of the manure, and that might end up in groundwater. And um, due to the fact that uh, this melamine was now considered to be a carcinogen category 2, the committee concluded then this means that it is what we call a relevant metabolite. And a relevant metabolite is not allowed to exceed a trigger value in groundwater. 
Uh, and if that is the case, then uh, either the substance must be banned or what we did in this case, uh, we reduced the number of applications. So we took some measures, and let's put it more simply. We took some measures for certain applications, which might be a more restrictive market than for this, uh, for this company. Um, and we banned outdoor uses, so the outdoor treatment of compost or the outdoor treatment of manure heaps, which again is a restrictive uh, restriction to their use. But there are also some members who were saying, well, uh, it is a relevant metabolite, but can we not do a risk assessment? Because you then you do this strictly based on its, what we call inherent properties, based on the fact that it's carcinogenic category two. And they were saying, can we not take what we call then risk considerations into account? So then we're going to look at this concentration in groundwater. We look at consumption, let's say, and we see whether there is a risk and try to derive a threshold, etc. But this is not there in our legal framework. So there we had a bit the same issue as for this substitution that uh, some members were saying then, well, let's uh, ask the commission to clarify this for us. We better wait again. Uh, the commission was saying to us, well, we cannot uh, clarify this for you at the moment. We would need to consult, we would need to come back. If you send it to us, we will for sure look, to, uh, look at it, but we cannot give you an answer at the moment. So that's where we, then we were in this situation. Do we now adopt this opinion or do we not adopt this opinion? And in the end, uh, we decided still to adopt because for us, we have this legal deadline of adopting an opinion in 180 days. Um, if we would postpone that we would go over our legal deadline. Uh, and also when uh, this future work would need to be done for the comparative assessment, that means that that would not be fee covered for the member state who did the evaluation, in this case Switzerland, or for us, because as ECHA we also get a fee for a biocidal product with a substance which meets the substitution criteria, we get an, an extra fee. So, yeah, and taking all this together, let's say in the end we decided to, uh, yeah, to continue with the adoption. We adopted the opinion, but there was quite some members, I must say, who expressed, uh, who abstained and meaning that they would have preferred to still uh, wait for the adoption and then uh, come back on it later. But yeah, in the end, indeed, we decided to adopt and uh, this will now go to the commission and then we will need to see what, uh, what is going to happen. Yes, thank you. Uh, before we end, um, was there anything else from the agenda that you would like to raise? Um, maybe still this uh, this alternatives uh, the the analysis of alternatives it was uh, yeah not an agenda item let's say which sparked a lot of discussion but it was for us to inform the members uh, what ECA is doing in terms of the analysis of alternatives and it, it is for let's start it is a recurring issue so uh, under our framework and that's related to active subs approval when a substance is meeting the exclusion or the substitution criteria, meaning that we would like to phase out this substance uh, in the end, we would like to ban it, replace it by better alternatives, then we need to uh, make an analysis of the alternatives on the market. And if there are sufficient and suitable alternatives, then you might go to, let's call it simply, banning this active substance. 
Um, but that has always been a bit of a problem within our framework because we have no guidance, we have no experience, we have no expertise, or we member states, or for sure many member states lack, uh, lack expertise. So what we have done uh, as ECA, we started to develop some guidance for, uh, for member states and only for, also for applicants, so that industry knows what they have to, have to submit, that member states know what they need to do when they get this information, uh, third parties who can submit information during what is called a public consultation, that we give them some, some guidance on how they, uh, how they can submit information and, of course, what we are looking for. Um, so we presented our first ideas to the, to the committee. There were not that many uh, comments, but this was, of course, very welcome that at least we start, will start to see now some guidance to be used. And where we foresee that we will have this ready by, by uh, something like mid-next uh, mid year. We will have a draft in the March meeting and then we hope to adopt the, uh, the guidance in the, in the next meeting. That's what we did, and we also, uh, but that did not really kick off, I must say, to start a network for uh, for the analysis of alternatives. Um, because I said, there are not many member states who have a lot of expertise, so it might be good, and that's also what has happened on the REACH. And we, we, we use a bit of REACH experience uh, within BiSites now, and that's uh, that's very welcome and it's very helpful. Um, so can we not set up a kind of a network for uh, where member states can join, where dedicated in uh, research institutes or uh, industry associations can join to make this uh, work more uh, more easy and that people that it's easier for people to find uh, to find each other. So we just mentioned the possibility. Uh, there are some activities going on, especially in Germany, on this. And we didn't bring that to a conclusion, but we might start to develop such a, such a network. So we hope that that will, uh, yeah, that that will, let's say, facilitate and improve the work we are doing within our framework on the analysis of uh, of alternatives. So yeah, and that's uh, no, that that's what all the agenda items of this meeting. Good. So on the last one, work continues. Yes, for sure. Thank you, Eric, for this uh, deeper look at the work of the Biocidal Products Committee. And thank you also to you, our listeners, for tuning in. If you want to know more about our committees or the topics discussed in this episode, you can go to our website at eka.europa.eu. And you can find all episodes of the Safer Chemicals podcast on your favorite podcast channel.